Welcome to the podcast, Phenomenosophy, Episode 4, World on Fire. So today, myself, Gingy, and our special guest, Maggie Ramirez, will be discussing events around the world, um, from the pandemic to the various political uprisings, protests, and everything going on, and what it might mean for our future, and where we can have an effect on what's occurring and what's happening. So, Mr. Jinji, how are you? Uh, how's it going? Going pretty good. How are you? I am well. So, what do you think, uh, what is your overall take on what's going on in the world? Um, just like a kind of overall view of everything, if you take into consideration everything from political polarizations and, and uh, protests and riots and pandemics and everything else, what's your, what's your experience of what's occurring in the world right now? I was actually just talking with my girlfriend about this last night. Uh, it kind of feels like there is no neutrality anymore. That Everyone is emotionally invested into either side of whatever topic I'm, I'm talking with people. It could be something as simple as like, hey, yeah, man, did you have a good day today? Like, oh, it was terrible. And somebody else is like, oh, actually, man, I had a pretty good day. Like, liar, it was terrible. Like, <laughs> just needing to take a position on whatever the topic is and, and defend that position. And so then when I start looking at like the way that coronavirus is playing out and if I look at the way that politics are playing out, even election stuff, I mean, that's kind of given, but all aspects of topics, talking with people, it just seems like the polarization is getting more and more cemented, not necessarily uh, becoming more extreme. I feel like it already is and has been kind of extreme. It's just, there's less uh, neutrality, less middle ground, less gray area. You okay. know, I've seen that more and more and more, but that, that's what I would say. What, what do you think? Well, let's bring Maggie in. I'll give you my take in just a second, but I want to bring Maggie in on this mm -hmm. conversation as well and see what her take on current events and her experience of all of these things together. Hi, Maggie. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Maggie. Hi guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, great question. What do I think? How do I feel about it? Right. Um, I think it's really interesting simply because we're, we're in a state where I believe it's great to see. I mean, it's always been there. It's not like all of this is new, really. Right. It's just showing up. So it's good. It's good to see it. It's good to see it show up and be in the forefront because now we can look at it. Um, if you don't look at it, if you don't look at it, you can really do nothing about it. And now that it's being, you know, placed in front of us, then we get to show up to be who we say we really are. So this is this is this is really interesting, and it's a great opportunity for all of us to really, you know, be with that and go within and see what how we truly feel about what is happening now that it is in the forefront so right yeah so and i definitely uh will echo 
uh, Jinji on the polarization. Um, I, I have yet, and I've been around for quite a few years, I've yet to see polarization, especially on the political level and seemingly how now everything has been politicized. Um, maybe not everything, but a lot of things that to me don't seem to be political at all are now somehow, some way politicized. I look back at like the 80s, mm. right? There was pretty much the same split, politically speaking, that we have now um, in America, and yet nowhere near the polarization. And what I mean by polarization is that people in taking their positions, like you pointed out, Gingy, there is no middle or, or gray area there. It's, it's, I'm right, you're wrong, and, and everyone kind of taking that position and then dividing everything up as if it's, as if it's political, like the coronavirus. Like, if you have a certain way of thinking about the pandemic, well, then you're on this side of the political spectrum. What, like, how does that make sense that, that a pandemic is somehow politically charged and, and your position on a pandemic is somehow related to your political leanings? I've never seen anything like that. I, I find that fascinating. And I do want to echo also Maggie's kind of uh, take on this and that it's, I also see the potential for, for change, for opportunity. It, it is definitely an opportunity. And I, okay, here's what I equate it to. If you look back in history, like uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, where humanity took, you know, moved forward in leaps and bounds. But you also look at like what was going on, right? You had a pandemic. <laughs> you had pandemics. You had like the, uh, uh, the uh, what do they call that? The Spanish Inquisition. Like, I mean, there were these extreme elements occurring within human society. And at the same time, you have this, this moving forward in philosophy and in art. And if we look at where humanity went from the beginning of the Renaissance through to the end of the Enlightenment, there's this remarkable transformation, this remarkable moving forward for humanity. And uh, so much was gained. And so you can, I can kind of look at what's occurring in the world now and say like, wow, especially when you consider how, how we seem to be moving through things at an exponentially faster rate than we have in the past. So it's like, okay, if I, if I equate this to what, what I've seen of the, in the past where humanity faces these great challenges and these, these great polarizations and then what comes out of it, as if this is a moment where this great potential for the future of, of our society and humanity is emerging and is showing up in a way that it's like, okay, this might be a really exciting time. And yet, if you look around and how people are experiencing all this, and this is really what I want to get into next is we're also seeing a higher, like ridiculously high rate of suicide. We're seeing uh, anti-anxiety and anti-depression medications being prescribed at levels that they've never been prescribed at. 
when we look at the polarizations within politics and within our society between groups of people, we're seeing anger and hatred and fear with the pandemic and everything at levels that, again, in my lifetime, I haven't seen. So there's, and not, and, and then again, there are people who aren't necessarily experiencing any of those things. So I want to, I want to touch on that. The, the experience of, and your, your experience of where people are at with regards to depression, anxiety, fear, anger, right? And even like hatred, there, there's a lot of hatred, uh, in this polarization that we're seeing. So, uh, start with you, Gingy. What do you, what have you noticed? What are you seeing with regards to how people are feeling and how they're reacting to the events in the world and this moment? Um, I'll say this. I, in, in my noticing of the, the polarization that's happening, um, as part of that process, I'm seeing when people get challenged on their position or if they get um, attacked for whatever views they're holding, or if they get automatically lumped into a certain category, like just because of a choice they made or of a question they asked, all of a sudden they're part of a group that they don't want to be associated with. I notice a lot of uh, kind of like fight or flight almost, where it's, mm-hmm. it's either I'm just going to, attack this person or brush it off and run away. And so what I'm seeing a lot of is people either choosing to completely dismiss the perspective of an individual be based off of how they talk or what they're talking about or what other people say about that person um, or what type of box they've been assigned by some, some media personality or by some, um, blogger or a friend on Facebook. Like it really could be any source that they find, um, you know, that they credit. But I find that they will, they will completely ignore the points that somebody has to make. That's my flight reference. Or they'll say, well, that person is this type of so-and-so and attack them. Mm-hmm. I'm not really seeing a whole lot of, of people being open to changing their minds or being open to inquiry or investigation. Um, and when you, and when you, yeah. when you experience that, wh- where do you think they're at in their reaction? Meaning what am I feeling for me to be defensive, intolerant and things like that? Like, are you experiencing people in a place of, of anger or fear or, even hatred or, you know, like where, what are you experiencing as far as people feeling about what's occurring around? Well, in that, in that analogy, it's, they're feeling defensive is, it was my take on the situation. I don't really know how they're feeling. I haven't really inquired too much about where somebody's at besides the people that are closest to me. Like, well, why are you attacking this person? Where are you at? How are you feeling? What's going on for you? And then Usually in those moments, it does boil down to, you know, I'm, I'm scared that the pandemic is going to last forever, or I'm scared that I might actually get somebody sick, or I might actually get it and die, or um, I'm scared that Trump will be reelected, 
or that <laughs> we have no good options for president or um you know, I, I feel that people are going to continue being victims if we're using the same type of language and and boxing and, and ignorance and bigotry or an imaginary system is you know suppressing large groups of people there's um um like a sense of being afraid and being a victim of something they can't really much about. so i i definitely have noticed the fear i've noticed the the anxiety the resistance um anger the fight the fear the running away now these this is in very broad terms i'd have to talk about specific topics to really I think dive into this a little bit deeper and unpack what I'm talking about, but okay, well, generality. We'll talk, yeah, that's we'll keep. The we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go into the individuals in a moment. We'll we'll address, you know, each in its own right and see, you know, take a look at each uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to an overall general view. I will Maggie. say that I've noticed less people being open and compassionate and accepting and. Just straight up happy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go ahead, Meg. Uh well, I think you pretty much summed it up, Gingy, um, in the sense of just on general terms with what's going on. I think that social media, you know, ha- is being it's playing a big role mm-hmm. on on all of this. And um Fear obviously is one of the biggest um, emotional tactics that is being used to control and manipulate, obviously. And that's what I've seen more than anything. It's fear of the unknown, fear of what may come, fear of um, across the board, losing your home, having, you know, not, you know, not being able to open up your business again not being able to go back to work, not being able to take your children, you know, to school, fear of, you know, these vaccinations and fear of it being a mandatory vaccination, how everything has become political um, across the board. So that turns into frustration, right? Uh, All this fear uh, turns into anger and frustration because they feel they can do anything about it. Um, and in certain ways, they can't. Uh, so uh, it, it's, you know, you can go into details with certain, you know, conversations I've had. For example, the local, you know, restaurant that I go to where the owner is just completely frustrated that there's tents outside of a, a restaurant across from where he's at. And there's people sitting next to each other eating, and he doesn't understand why that is different from having people just come into his restaurant and eat, and being so frustrated that you know he can't open his doors to to us, to the clients, to having um, a local nail salon, or my hair, you know, my hairstylist, or the esthetician who still can't open their doors. Now let's take it to the other side, where now I have friends that. You know, they're they're having like the best year of their lives. You know, they are profitable and they are excited and they even feel that they have to hide it because of this polarization, how it's not acceptable to say that 2020 is great for them. 
because mm -hmm. across the board, it should not be. Everyone should be depressed, sad, angry, um, in fear. And how is it that we are allowing ourselves to justify certain things and judge other things and categorize them and say, well, if you feel this way or think this way about this particular topic, you fit in this box and that's mm -hmm. it. There's no way around it. Right. That's where my heart aches when I, when I see that because we get to be in a place, we get to create a space, a safe space for people to be able to have a conversation, to have a dialogue and be able to speak without fearing of being judged based on where they're at. And I think, and this is my great points. Uh, yeah, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna philosophize here for a second. So the reason I think that polarization has gotten to the level that it's at, where I mean, an example that I saw the other day, like we're we're very familiar with this, the movement of Black Lives Matter. Okay. And I don't think there's anybody that would disagree with the, the sentiment of black people's lives mattering, right? And however, this has been politicized and it's now a, a it's, it's, it's politically left, okay? And it comes from the political left-hand side of the spectrum, so to speak. And there's this position being taken that well, if you aren't a part of this movement and you don't echo these sentiments the way that we echo them and you don't act the way that we act and you don't talk the way that we talk, well, then you're a fascist. You're a Nazi. And now it's rhetoric and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't feel like that's a big deal to just throw names out like that. However, uh, something that caught my attention the other day where it's like, okay, this, this really is a bigger, a really big deal. It's not just throwing out the name, right? You've by polarizing and making that by anyone who doesn't act and speak and do the things that I do is now this other thing, right? The box that you guys are talking about that, like they they are Nazis, right? And I mean, how many Nazis can there possibly be in the world at this point? A dozen. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think the Nazi movement is really something that's something we need to be afraid of, but it's just something that's a broad categorization. Like we're just going to throw all these people. And because it's politicized, it's basically you have people on the left saying, well, everyone over there on the right is a Nazi. And then you have people on the right saying, well, everyone over there is a communist. Right. And so that, the danger I see in that was I saw a, a Black Lives yeah, protest slash riot on television the other day. And one of the participants was wearing a shirt that said, Nazi lives don't matter. Okay. Now, again, am I afraid for Nazis? I mean, all six of them? Not really. I mean, if they're really Nazis, it's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, that, yes, all lives matter. <laughs> but 
it do, it doesn't feel like a threat. It doesn't feel very threatening to be wearing a Nazi lives don't matter unless you really look at, well, I've categorized everyone who doesn't have my political belief as a Nazi. What is that saying? By saying that everyone who doesn't believe my political positioning's life doesn't matter, that is a dangerous place to stand. And and I and again, I feel my my theory here is that when there's a high level of anxiety or uncertainty or fear, that that's when you have radical polarization. Okay, so fear that people are experiencing is what's creating this this uh, extreme polarization, right? Or at least that's how that's. That's my theory around it. And so I'm, and, and, and I think it's valuable to take a look at what Maggie was just talking about with not necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm having a different experience because business is good for me or anything else, but what about your choice to react to what's happening in the world as opposed to, you know, we talked about in our last episode, um, Beyond the Matrix, about the power we have in reacting to the world. And is this one of those moments that if we were mindful about how we're reacting and the power that we have to choose the meaning that we give to things as, a, as opposed to just adopting these polarized ways of seeing things and thinking, which are further polarizing and creating, like I said, this really, what I feel is a really dangerous place to be is that your life doesn't matter. Like you don't believe in what I believe and your life doesn't matter. And again, it's like, okay, well, I don't see that <laughs> as being something that's necessarily going to head in a positive direction. What, where can we go? What can we do to shift this radical polarization within people. What do you think, Jinji? Well, the, I think you, you hit on something there that I want to address because I, I don't even think that it's we need to use intentionally our, um, like our ability to define things. Um, but understanding that there's there's power in that and if we are defining people as nazis or else even say redefining people as nazis because realistically even the the dozen or half dozen that you're talking about i don't even think they'd really be classified as a legit Nazi, <laughs> right <laughs> like maybe some new age type of nazism or something like that um and if we're a, if we're paying attention to the power that we're giving that label, meaning now the Nazism and all that stuff is defined very much so as like a, a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know how many times I've because you know I I I only really engage in politics if I see someone or something I would want to get behind and support. And so I constantly ask a lot of questions about, you know, like somebody's stance on something. Like when Trump was running for president for his first term, I was like, 
you actually think he'll be able to get a wall built <laughs> and have Mexico pay for it? Or do you think the kids like, you know, like what's his name said in his, his skit, like, we're going to have two recesses. I'm going to get a vending machine in every classroom. <laughs> like, is it just the, the politics game, you know? Right. But to lump somebody into a box and define them in a certain way and redefine that word to mean something different now, then it's very easy to all of a sudden lump multiple people into that same category and hate them. Regardless of if they actually identify there or if they actually belong there or if you know they actually subscribe to the beliefs that you think they do. Like right. uh, I've talked to a lot of people and been like, well, you know, what about this thing that Trump did in his tax reform? And they were like, well, that doesn't matter. He's still racist. I'm like, okay. So you're telling me that someone that's racist can't benefit, you know, the population or being productive in some way. And it's, it's the, the box that they hold him in that has no matter what he does, it's tainted with racism and sexism and, and whatever else. And there's this, like, just like I said, this, this polarization. It's either he's bad because of all the, the racist stuff or he's awesome and we want him to run for a second term and win and, and continue being our president. There is no, I'm not a fan of the racist remarks or the feminist, or the, uh, the womanizing remarks. I almost said feminizing. I don't think that's a word. <laughs> the womanizing remarks and stuff. But he's done a couple of things that I'm appreciative of. Like not letting people get kicked out of their houses during the pandemic, not uh, like removing one of the laws that IRS was using to throw people in prison for stuff and like or whatever. There's there's a handful of things that I've heard from from both sides, but I I feel I'm one of the few people that sits in the middle, just watching both sides in in the extreme. Like, well, he's a terrible person. The racism on all this stuff. Those are the ones that that tell me everything that's wrong with it. And then on the other side, they're like, well, did you know that so-and-so is, you know, he's, he's done this and this and this and this, and it's amazing. They're all like pro-Trump supporters. And they'll viciously defend their position if challenged. And I just so happen to be in a space of curiosity sitting in the middle. And so it's not that I feel like everybody needs to be extraordinarily present to how they define people or what boxes they hold people in or use it intentionally, but simply to understand that there's power in identifying somebody. And I'm not even talking about how they identify themselves because that's an entirely different self-image type of process. But if I'm going to look at you and say, you're in the Nazi box, there is extraordinary power in that because that person will never be able to show up as anything else outside the Nazi, Nazi box for you and the mm. people that you roll enroll into that ideology, that <clears throat> worldview or the belief of that individual. Right. So understanding the power that's involved there is incredibly important so that that power doesn't become a beer. And really that would be intentionality and you know being purposeful with how you define people and things but um that number one step i would love to see people um really be intentional and aware 
of the power behind the identify the boxes that they people especially those mm-hmm. people closest to them one thing to be like oh like when they had those those protests last weekend or the weekend before in in uh in cologne they had like what three four million people marching out there and i saw stuff in the papers of like oh all these nazis supporting <laughs> no mass and all this stuff and I'm wow like, four million nazis <laughs> that was way off i'm like okay all of a sudden everyone in in cologne or no, it was berlin everyone in berlin or whatever town it was it was in germany like everyone in germany <laughs> is now a freaking nazi again and it's like <laughs> no one wants to have a conversation and i i even brought up to someone who said that and they were like i was like you know they were like standing around photos of gandhi and like mother Teresa, and it was all like kumbaya we love each other and they're like yeah but you know nazis these days they uh they have an <laughs> entirely different approach <laughs> i'm like all right these are these are lovable nazis so Aww. anyway so that's a how interesting it's that point of understanding that there is power in identifying somebody else right what do you think maggie well again i think it's great to see the opportunity you know it everything has there's a choice and there is an opportunity to see based on our perspective whatever you choose for that to be so how do you choose to see the situation how do you see to how do you choose to see uh what's unfolding and what's being brought forth and again it's choice who do you choose to be moving forward who do you choose to be to show up as all of this continues to unfold um, in the many ways that it is? It's our choice. We do have a choice. And it is an opportunity to really see what, what is, what is it, it, the transparency of a lot of things, of people, right? This is also the opportunity of people to show up united because there is, maybe the media is not showing it, but I've seen it and I choose to see that as well. I choose to see the beauty of how people have come together, how people choose to be there for each other, to support each other. I understand that the media may not see that as something worth uh, putting the focus to, but it is my choice to see it. And I'm, I've seen it worldwide. Mm-hmm. So I get to choose to see where my focus is, where my attention is. And also based on whatever it is that shows up, I get to choose how I get to show up as who I say I really am and and stop pointing the finger that because this is happening that is happening then that's why I'm being the way I am responsibility and, and being a victim of a situation yeah absolutely it's taking responsibility for all of our actions and our thoughts mm-hmm. and our reactions right we either are on are on action mode or reactive and that's okay but stop blaming and stop putting the finger and looking at what's happening outside of ourselves feeling that we have no choice we do have a choice 
Now, do we want to get stuck in social media and get on Facebook and argue with people? Because that's what I've seen as well. And that's why I'm no longer there. <laughs> because I am done with spending any kind of time on reading posts of people arguing with each other because you can't see eye to eye because everyone's in a box and now you posted that and now you're like you said you're a nazi because you posted that and um i'm never gonna take you out of the box i don't care what you say what you do you're in that box and not and i'm in this box and if you can't jump into this box then we just can't be friends anymore go ahead mm -hmm. and unfriend me on facebook go ahead and stop <laughs> following me on social media because you know that. what we're not on this box wow wow okay you know and we do that with our family i've seen that i've seen that you know where brothers and sisters they just can't see eye to eye and and because of this everything has become this political thing right whether it doesn't matter what it is right whether you have a job you don't have a job you you're taking your child to school or you're not taking your child to school whether you're pro vaccinations or not now you're in a box and because you don't want to jump inside this box with me i just you know what let's just leave it at that you know siblings mm -hmm. having these conversations and so the biggest thing i feel is is again is being able to come to the table and be okay feel that you are welcome to share your point of view and being able to have a dialogue a discussion without it turning into an argument you know we argue because we want the other we want to convince the other person to see things our way it's not about that and this is really giving us that opportunity for everyone to really show up in that greater version of themselves so it's it's great i feel that it's great for us to really be with that and and go within this is for me i feel it's it's taking on a daily basis i get to just go within and you know analyze my thoughts and see whether or not they benefit me in in moving forward and that that's my invitation for others and just being able to have more compassion i think that that's the biggest thing here it's being able to have compassion for others it's well if that person feels that way so strongly about a particular topic then let me be open to understanding why is it that they feel that way and have compassion towards that as opposed to um automatically you know throw up my walls and judge them and place them in a box so these are mm -hmm. the times that really allow us to just to see who to see where we stand as well let's stop looking at where every everyone else's standpoint is like what is your standpoint and how how does that allow you to move and flow through the energies that are currently you know the waves that are showing up <laughs> so and i'm going to piggyback on that um so getting clear on where you stand on th something as well and and i'm going to add to that getting clear on the principles that you are living your life by the principles you really believe in like what 
What values do you live your life through? What, what values do you value? What principles do you value most? If we look at values like compassion, you mentioned, and forgiveness, and acceptance, and tolerance, and honesty, and responsibility, if we if we get clear on these are, are these are values that I that I hold and that I want to live my life by. So having that, we'll call it an ethical base to to start from, because then you both mentioned choice, and so my question is: Okay, we all have choice in how we react how we think, how we feel. If that is so, what would have us choosing this, this box reality that, we, that we've all spoken on? And it's like, well, I'm in this box and anyone not in this box is outside in that box. As if they're really, it's at this point, it's like there's two boxes. <laughs> box A or box B. And they're both right Ask anyone, ask anyone in box A how right they are about their box. And then ask anyone in box B about how right they are about being in their box. And if we really get down to, okay, so what, it, what would it take for me to really be outside of both boxes and to really be independent in my thinking, right? And I, I'd say the first thing is like being clear on those values, because then when you're clear on those values and you can pick and choose and analyze every single thing that comes your way, not from the place of the box, right? Like people in box A automatically interpret things this way. And people in box B will automatically interpret things this way. Well, okay, well, let's get rid of the boxes here for a second. Let me get grounded in my values and really take everything as if it were neutral and go from there. And I'd say the first thing, again, in times of uncertainty and fear, our, I would say our nature, our, uh, our tendency is to move towards authority. And I don't mean like, like uh, control over, you know, I mean authority as if like looking up to a point of view, a perspective, an ideology to guide us, okay? That's what I mean by authority, in that I don't trust my own interpretations of what's occurring around me. I don't trust my own interpretations of events or of people, right? It's safer. It, it's more comfortable to just kind of lump yourself in with a group. And so if, if well, people in box A are are smart people and people in box B are dumb people. Well, I'm a smart person, so I must be in box A. So there's no questioning anything because there's, you're looking at the ideologies as if they're authority. And so you just kind of latch onto it in a time of, of uncertainty and then in a time of fear. Whereas when, there's, when things are going really good, you're not, that, you're not so quick to just jump on anyone's ideology and believe everything coming out of that box because you, you're good. You feel all right. You're not necessarily looking for some authority or ideological source for what, how you're interpreting the world. You're more open, 
possibly, to being free to interpret the world through your own values. Because I've seen that. I know that people can operate that way. So it's not an impossibility. So in the possibility that if I ground myself in, in my values and in my principles, and I can be a critical thinker and not need to be right in box A and not need to be right in box B and not need an ideological authority for how I interpret things. And like Maggie said, just, you know, be present to and, and go within and see like, okay, well, what do I, you know, what is it about this event information, you know, based on my principles, based on my values, and based on where I want to go myself and where I want, really where I want to see my community, my, my, uh, the people around me, where I want to see them going to, like if I value human, humanity, right? How can I say some lives don't matter? How can I, how can I stand on that value? And if there are people in box A saying that, well, how can, how can I just adopt box A's ideology? I value human life. So if I value human life, I can't just buy into an ideology that doesn't, right? So it's, if we're not well-grounded in a set of values and principles, then we can quickly be taken away into ideologies that really don't necessarily align with what's in our heart and what's at our core. And I, and I feel that today there is a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that a lot of the anxiety and depression being experienced by many people out there is a, is, is a, at a, at its root caused by cognitive dissonance. In that, and, and in cognitive dissonance, you have what you believe, right? There's, a, there's, there's what you believe about yourself, how you see yourself, the image you've painted of who you are, what your principles are, what your values are, right? And you, they're not necessarily even in the forefront of your mind. They're not necessarily conscious. But there is at some core like, I am a good person. I am loving. I am compassionate. I am forgiving. And yet you buy into this ideology that doesn't really line up with those beliefs you have about yourself and who you are. And you're saying things and thinking things and acting in ways that are in complete contradiction because you're, because you're getting your interpretations and what to say and how to think from an ideology. There's a contradiction to your core beliefs, to your values, to your ethics. And so there's a, it, you know, in psychology, if if you uh, someone who ha- is experiencing this cognitive dissonance and and has this conflict of my actions, my words, my my uh, my outcomes, what what I'm creating is not in alignment with what I think about myself, what I believe about myself, how I see myself, creates an anxiety. You know, that's that's why it's a diagnosed the way that it is in, in psychology is like, you know, it's not good. It's not necessarily a good thing. You don't want to necessarily be in a state of cognitive dissonance. In fact, it comes up it, the way we recognize it and, and identify that it's there is that there's a level of anxiety. There's something rising up in this person, an uneasiness, a dis-ease within them. And I would say that a lot of that may be today because of this contradiction, 
this contradiction that we do at some level, whether we're even conscious of it or not, we have values. We have principles within us, in our core, in our heart. We have these things we want to be living our lives by and that we believe at some deep level. And yet the ideologies we've, we've chosen to attach ourselves to or that are even possessing us are, con- are contradicting this. And this may be creating this high level of anxiety. So what I'd like to do now is let's take you know, pieces of what's happening in the world and let's, let's look at how each of you may choose, because you talked about choice here, and how each of you may choose to interpret and experience things on, on, on these individual pieces. You know, so let's start with the pandemic. I believe it's a, it's a big one. I believe it's having a, a, an effect, an impact on all of these things. Everybody um, knows about it. More famous than more famous than Michael Jackson. <laughs> so what, what's your, uh, how are you choosing? And what do you feel, not only as, uh, on a personal level, what I, how I'm choosing to interpret the, everything around it. I also want to get an idea of well, how, do you, what, how do you see it? Like I want to get an idea of the, the reality of the pandemic for you. And from that, the reality, as you're interpreting it, how you're choosing to create your experience and reaction to it. Interesting. Um, so principally, I first off draw a line between fear and danger. It's like, uh, was that Will Smith movie? Yeah, um, dude, as soon Earth? as you said that. Yeah, something after like that. After Earth. Something yeah. like that. Um, where... Fear is the choice, and whether or not I choose fear is up to me. But the danger of the virus is real. Now, to what degree, I think, has been in hot debate since this whole thing started. So for me, with with ideologies, with belief, with um, worldview in general, I... I see that there's two different ways to, I guess, for an individual to experience a belief. And number one, it's it's either I cr- like create the belief through, or even the expectation through looking at experiences of my life or patterns in my life, and I'll draw my own conclusions. And or number two, I'll hear somebody else either having adopted or created their own belief and understanding, and I'll adopt what they've said. So I I acknowledge that every single belief or interpretation of the world that I hold is either self-generated or adopted by an external source, external source. So when, when I go and start, you know, when I first started hearing about coronavirus, it was, you know, people at the, the post office talking about it. Oh, we just had our first case and ah, ha, ha, can't cross the rivers, right? And, <laughs> you know, they're joking about it and stuff. And and I started seeing it on social media. I started seeing it on news articles. And, and then I started noticing things closing down. But it never really hit me close to home until I went to the grocery store and I saw shelves empty. <laughs> I saw no toilet paper and tofu in existence. It blew my mind. 
And uh, the, the funny joke I heard a lot was, what's next? I feel like zombies are going to come running out of the street into this building or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so common beliefs I could have adopted about what was going on was millions of people were going to die or, um, you know, this is a threat to everybody's grandma or this is, um, you know, it was man-made, it's a biological weapon, or this was just something that jumped species. There were all of these um, descriptions or explanations about what was going on. Narratives. (laughs) And I don't necessarily adopt a belief very often. So when I hear accusations, narratives like that, I start going and looking at stuff. Like, Facts. I go start looking at research. I start looking at cases. And I get as much information as I can and then choose my reaction to it, like Maggie was saying. You either are in action or you're in reaction. And uh, very early on in the whole pandemic, I want to say March um, and in April, I was still crafting my relationship with <laughs> so one day I'd be kind of in awe and terrified and like I'm not leaving the house at all today and then the next it was eh, it's not that big a deal I'm gonna just do what I'm gonna do right and the more that this has played out and the more that uh, like science really has come into play like one of the biggest things that I look at to if I start feeling fearful I'll go to CDC website, or I'll go to like a, our world in numbers or data, or a world in data or something, one of those websites. Um, and I'll start looking at how many people have been dying from this virus in the United States specifically. I mean, I could do it globally, but I'm more impacted with what's going on in this country. And it's been on a steady decline. And that always makes me feel better about what's going on. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter to me. But more and more people are getting it and less and less people are dying from it. To me, that's good news. And it has me reacting in a way that is less fearful. Now, the danger of getting it, it could still be very deadly, um, especially to people with compromised immune systems. And the fact that the virus is out there is a measurable fact in our environment. We can find it and analyze it and cut it up and say, boom, there it is. Look at it. It's right here. Um, but the, the narrative that everybody needs to be fearful and that if we don't all wear a mask, we're all going to die or whatever (laughs) other, um, things that I've I've literally heard people say that like, oh, we're all going to die if no one, if one person's not wearing a mask. Um, and that is on the extremes. I don't think anybody actually believes that the world will die if one person doesn't mask, but with ideologies, you've always got the entire spectrum at each pole. Full-on adopters and the <laughs> the, uh, the naysayers. So the, the full-on rejectors. Full-on adopters and full-on rejectors. <laughs> uh, so really, for me, that's that's the way I go about it. And if if I'm if I'm really trying to figure out where I stand on something, which is Something that I thought about last night, I was like, I really feel like the world at this point is demanding I take a position on something. 
Because <laughs> every single person it I talk sure to. Sure does feel that way. <laughs> Everybody I talk to about something, I'm like, well, what about the science of uh, about this? And they're like, oh, so you're one of those. I'm like, well, not necessarily. What about the science over here that's kind of contradicting to what I was just talking about? It's like, oh, so you're one of us then. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> and so, like, I almost, Did you I pick almost a want box? to join that game. I almost want to join that game and, and be on a side of it. But at the same time, because I ground myself in principles, like, uh, you know, choice or responsibility, it's more accurate, um, compassion, I really can't be all in one box. And if I was, I would be experiencing levels of cognitive dissonance, saying, I agree with 99% of this box, but that 1% is going to be dissonant to how I actually feel. So my natural state is to adopt you know, things from every box. So like you're like, how do we live outside of both boxes? I'm like, how do I live in all the boxes at the same time? <laughs> how do I take all the little pieces and make up my mind about whatever's going on? And um, because I'm grounded in principles, like then it's, it's easy for me to to take pieces of each box and say, you know, I can read a study about how and why masks are effective and supportive, but also not agree with the mandates and the forcefulness of making it a requirement. I can look at the vaccine conversation and say some of them are totally unnecessary, while the idea of immune therapy is actually a very great concept that could be used awesomely. And there are probably vaccines out there that ass and do great. You know, I can be on both sides of each argument and adopt certain things from each, um, each ideology and live an effective, compassionate, connected life. For, for me, I'd love to see people take their ideologies and love them and run with them, but not let it get in the way of connecting and really hearing people out and being compassionate and valuing everybody their ideologies, their choices in life, their beliefs, their stances, their boxes, all their boxes, while not making them wrong. Like, oh, that's where you're at. Interesting. Let's have a conversation. That's what I'd like. Hey Maggie, what do you think? What, first of all, what's your overall view of the pandemic in and of itself? And how are you choosing to interpret the events and information around it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was really interesting, you know, when it, it showed up right at the beginning of the year. And Again, it's going back to this whole fear tactic, right? And it happened everywhere. And I and I saw it. I remember it was probably at the end of January. I was speaking with a friend and we had plans to, you know, travel throughout the year and go to so many different places. But when I saw what began to happen, I told her, I said, Yeah, I don't think none of this is gonna happen. I said it's and I could feel it. I can feel the frequency of what was to come. Energetically, I felt it. And I was like, oh, honey, it's not good. 
like, oh, don't be afraid. It's just like the whole, the whole, the, what is that mosquito thing in, that's happening in South America and all that stuff. She's like, it's no big deal. Zika. And the Zika. No, there's another the one too. West Nile or something. I forgot which one it was. <laughs> and she's like, oh, so she's like, you know, there's, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, no, no, it's more than that. I can feel it, you know, because I would just check in with myself and I'm like, How, what does this feel like? You know, what does this feel like moving forward? And I just felt it. It was heavy. And I was like, it's not good. And it was not about specifically the virus, but energetically what was coming was heavy. Mm. And it was not looking good. Um, and of course, you see the news in Europe with what's happening there and I had like one of our first trips that we were going to take you know at the beginning of April and moving forward was mostly in Europe and um and all that obviously got canceled but you know Italy and then Spain and just went across and it was really bad um and the numbers that showed up. So, you know, when that type of information comes, we get to be with that. You know, you get to be with that and see like, whoa, is this real? First of all, right? Because again, we've been, we've already experienced what it is to be controlled and manipulated through the media. So it's always taking that information and then, you know, making sure it's real. Fake news, right? <laughs> and um, and so that takes time. It's not like from one day to another. You'll know. And if anything, you should take precaution. And that's what I would tell people. Sure, take precaution of everything, always. But don't get, don't allow yourself to drown in fear. Uh, and so I, that was like, that was one of the biggest things. Again, I, you know, my mother lives with me. So that was very important for me to just make sure that, that she was going to be okay. I, did, I wasn't sure what it really was. But as it began to unfold and I began to do my due diligence, I started really, information started coming to me from different places, which is just the way the universe works with me and starts giving me information that's not from the media. And I began to add, you know, two and two together and began to see for what it was. And um, I think that that's the biggest thing for everyone to always do. Just do your due diligence. Because if you just take what the media is sharing and what it's telling you to think and believe, then there's always, you know, there's always that fear behind it. Um, that's why a lot of people don't like watching the news because it's always bad news. Uh, so it, it was it it was something that needed me to really be with and come to understand what it meant to me. Right now, obviously, what I did not appreciate is for it to be shown in such a great manner of how they really the media really wanted to just control and manipulate the numbers that they were uh sharing without really um 
sharing the, the rest of statistics, right, across the board of everything else that mm-hmm. happens on a yearly basis. So I think that that was like one of the biggest things for me where um, I had to like really dive in and do my own due diligence and begin to to not allow um, what the media would say to affect me and allow my nervous system to be affected and to be manipulated and controlled um, with what they were saying. So that was one of the biggest things. I think across the board, biggest lesson is your due diligence. Don't allow, you know, information that comes to you and don't take it um, as face value. Super important. Um, And understand that there's always, there's something behind it. What's the agenda behind it? So be with that. Everybody obviously has their take in regards to what's going on and and what it is. so seeing how this fear has brought a lot of people to believing that they had to choose a box, right? And and define people by these boxes. Only two boxes now and people have to fit in it. Now I've never fit I, I don't I never have ever fitted in a, any box period in my life. Right. So uh it's it's so perfect. Right, because I I still don't, um, and people are so used to me not fitting in a box; mm-hmm. <laughs> they can never place me in a box. So it, you know, when we do have conversations about what's currently going on, uh, they just understand that. Well, Maggie never really fits in a box, so you know. But it's great to to see people, you know, people that have uh, participated in many of my trainings and workshops or retreats. They do come to me, you know. They they come to me and they have this. Uh, they have that question of of what does Maggie have to say about this pandemic and and where mm-hmm. does she stand? And again, it's not a conversation that everyone's really interested in having, really, right? Because it's it's sometimes and and that's where I gauge whether or not I I join any kind of conversation. Sometimes I just rather listen to what's being said and not not throw in my two cents because. They're not really asking for my two cents. They're just really wanting to know whether I fit in the box that they're in or not. So when it comes to that, you know, I I just listen. So so definitely uh, speaking to the experience of a lack of openness (laughs) that you've experienced (laughs) with other people and whether or not you choose to engage based on your experience of whether or not someone is open to... uh, to being free of their ideological beliefs. So something both of you mentioned in two different terms, um, but I feel definitely worth uh, going into more detail. You spoke about narratives, Gingy and, and Maggie, you spoke about agendas. So I, th- I find it interesting. And now I'm, gonna, I'm not, I don't have a, I don't, uh, prescribe to a particular political ideology. Um, if you were going to try to define me on the political spectrum, and, and, and nowadays I don't even know where I would be because of how, how things are being defined today, what's right and what's left. And I feel that at, at one point, <laughs> many years ago, I could have come close to defining myself as maybe a, like a left-leaning libertarian. But even today, I couldn't define myself that way because of where everyone falls on these political spectrums. 
So the agenda and the narrative stories uh, or concepts that I would like to speak into here are specifically what I see, like you talked about the media. And the media is such a powerful force as well as social media. And it seems that the mainstream media and social media in all its forms are kind of leaning into a set uh, into a set of ideologies, plural, in that what I see is, uh, is, is bits and pieces of various philosophical theories or uh, philosophies in the form of like critical theory, critical race theory, critical queer theory. Um, uh, what else do we see in there? Uh, oh, like postmodernism, you know, things like that, that I'm actually seeing being pushed and portrayed on the mainstream media in even in professional sports, um, in, uh, social media and by politics, right. In the political sphere as well, especially the left, the left has at least the far left. And I don't want to just group everyone who's left leaning into, you know, one box, although it seems like everyone's jumping into a box together. Um, there is these, and I don't know if you, either of you are familiar with these philosophies. Here's my assessment in that we, as Americans, I feel that a majority of the people I've ever met or have known or have been close to have a sense of justice and tolerance. And I, I've met very few people who are racist or anti, you know, gay or transphobic, or I've actually, I don't know many people who I would say are actually take positions like that against people, right? However, if you look at these, these philosophies like critical theory and critical race theory and critical queer theory, and even postmodernism and what it's pushing it with, with regards to oppression of intersectionality, I see these as actually being quite the opposite of what people see them as. Like, for instance, there's this whole movement around, you know, um, being anti-racist as well as the anti-fascist. And I'm, I haven't experienced more racism in my life than I've seen in these movements and in their philosophies. Like, for someone to be able to, you know, push a... a, a uh, a position that, oh, all white people are racist. That's racist, right? Like, isn't that the definition of racism? To <laughs> group an entire, to say something is so about an entire group of people? That's racist. By definition, that's racist. And yet I'm seeing, oh, and then the anti-fascists who are, you know, want to control your speech. They want to control personal freedoms, uh, that's fascist. So, so I'm seeing this like anti-racism, anti-fascism and things like that. And, and what I'm seeing is fascism and racism. I haven't seen as much divisiveness in this country. And I've been here for a while. I've been here a long time. <laughs> and I haven't seen divisiveness like this in, in the racial spheres or in, in sex when we talk about the genders, I haven't seen that. 
until the last several years. Like I, it, I saw glimpses of it in like 2015 and I thought I was just like coming across crazy people. I'm like, what are you on? Like you gotta be crazy. Um, and now it has a foothold and is being widely adopted and perpetuated by the masses. Like I said, at every level, every level of mass media, professional sports, you're seeing it everywhere. Adopting these philosophies that, I mean, really, just take a critical look at them. You know, like, let's just, let's break it down for what it is and what it's saying. And things that are claiming to be against racism, having all these racist principles, I I, I don't get it. And, uh, and so I see, like, we were talking about the narratives and the agendas. And I see, as, I see this, you know, the pushing of these types of philosophies. And, and what's interesting is I don't think many people understand that they are philosophies. Like, you can go look them up. You can read them. You can see them in detail. And really, put your critical thinking hat on while you're reading it. And you'll see it for what it is. You know, the, like the, uh, the, the pushing of these agendas and these narratives is, is, is the divisive elements that I see so we talk about like this polarization. And again, we're in, a, we're in a climate where people are experiencing more fear, whether or not that fear is justified. Okay, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get into that at this moment around like, let's say whether the pandemic. Whether or not there's danger. Yeah, whether or not there is, people are in fear. Okay, whether it's justified or not, let's, let's push that aside. So you take this people being in fear, and so there's a tendency to polarize, and then you you have these philosophies. There is an agenda because you're pushing a specific philosophy. It's not, it's, it's not amorphous. It's not, it's not just something that's just coming organically into people's minds. It's being fed. And if you're not familiar with these philosophies and yet you're repeating all the things all the principles of these philosophies, all the talking points of these philosophies, and you don't even know they exist, you may want to take a look at them and really do an analysis. Think for yourself and read it from a neutral place and see what you see. Because I don't see, what I'm seeing is something that's creating an amount, a, a divisiveness in our society that I've never seen. I've never seen divisiveness like this. I've never seen polarization like this. And it's the more you push these philosophies, the more divisiveness you create. And so... So I have a question. Yes. In these boxes that currently exist, one of the biggest things I feel that you know keeps showing up in this conversation is critical thinking. Mm-hmm. These individuals in these boxes that you've had conversations with, how many of them do you actually feel that are practicing critical thinking as opposed to simply adopting <laughs> a, one of these philosophies? I, I, to be honest, I can maybe count on one hand people that I experience critically thinking for themselves and and you guys are two of them and i don't know if there's many beyond the two of you (laughs) um there's like i said like one handful of people um 
Not to say that there isn't more. I'm sure there is. There's got to be. And there's got to be people. But I, I, I do see a lot of it. Like, I do see people who are definitely leaning into a, uh, let's say, an ideology or, or various ideologies. But there's some that lean into these ideologies who have a level of openness that allows them to think. And, and I would say that I'm, I'm definitely much more comfortable with that in, in our society of people. Okay. I, you know, cause it's not that ideologies are bad, you know, especially if it's an ideology based in, you know, some set of principles or, right. uh, uh, values, you know, those, those are powerful ideologies. However, um, if there's no openness outside of the ideologies you've adopted and you're and you're not even aware, because again, I have met very few people who are even aware of these philosophies that, again, if you look at them, it's clearly, it's crystal clear that these philosophies are being pushed in a big way in media, social media. And, and most of the people that are doing the pushing don't realize these are actual philosophical structures that they're giving voice to. They're just like, it's like the newest, latest thing. Like, oh, that's what's so okay. And then you just start regurgitating stuff that you've, that you've heard somebody else say. You, you haven't really thought about it. You're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, we over here in this box, that's what we believe. Okay. And, and I feel that that's, let's take for really, a moment. It's uh, the part just, about the redefining words is that's, giving new voice to these ideas because they are old ideas, new old ideologies. Right. But like racism is no longer defined, at least in these, in these ideologies, the way mm. it's been classically defined for. No, many but, years. but again, but that, that new definition comes out of these philosophies. You know, it, it is, mm. it, they needed to redefine it in order to push these new philosophies. You know, like you the, the, when you said all white people, are racist mm -hmm. and to call that racism in that those ideologies where that is true that's not considered racism calling all white people it, it racist is, is it is actually not racist. it is <laughs> that's by it, the old definition no 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 even by their new right. definition it is you just okay people haven't taken it to now. the level people haven't taken <laughs> it to the level of ridiculousness that they're pushing these things like for instance their the new definition of racism is if you have inequality of outcome, right? Inequity within a society. And what is inequality of outcome? So for instance, you, uh, students who go on to higher learning, right? Who get accepted to universities. Okay. That's, that's a very simple metric to, to talk about. Mm -hmm. If you have, if you break down the population per capita based on these identifying factors, race and other things, so if you look at race, okay, by and large, Asians excel at getting into uh, schools of higher learning, okay? So if you take how, many, how much Asians make up the population, like, and again, I don't have the actual numbers here in front of me. Let's say 10% of the American population is Asian, and yet the number of st Asian students at universities is 20%. That's an inequity. 
That's an, that's an unequal outcome. And that is racist. So we, and, and let's look again, uh, blacks make up 13 to 14% of the population. And if you have any less than 13 or 14% of university students being black, well then that is racist. It's saying that the entire structure is racist because the outcomes aren't the same. Now here's, here's where I, here's where I'm going to push it to ridiculousness. Okay. And, and they're actually, they talk about systemic racism. The only systemic racism, the only racism where there are laws that are actually saying, if you are this race or if you are that race is in the, is in the realm of, uh, the, the, the work, the workplace and the universities where they say, where they have what's called, uh, affirmative action. Basically, if you're Asian and white, you don't, we can actually reject you, even though you may be more qualified. You may be smarter, you may have higher test scores, but because we already have more Asians that are represented in the population, and we don't have enough blacks or Latinos that are represented in the population, we can reject you, which is racism. That is systemic racism. That's saying based on your race, not based on your merits, based on your race, we can reject you and we can accept these other people. That's the only form of systemic racism that's, that exists at this point. Laws that support unequal You're outcome. talking about... Uh, no, no, hold on, hold on. I haven't, had, I haven't had my chance to take this to the point of ridiculousness. Okay, okay. so unequal outcome, <laughs> right? So if we start... Now we're going to push this everywhere. Meaning, whatever your percentage of your race is, is in society, you must be that represented in everything in that percentage, right? So right now, let's look at the NBA. Let's look at the NBA. How many whites are there in the NBA compared to blacks? Because whites make up what? 60% of the population? Are there, is 60% of the NBA white? Blacks only make up 13% of the population. Is only 13% of the NBA white or black? Oh, well, then the NBA must be systemically racist. And therefore, we need to start rejecting the black players and get more white and Asian and Latino players in there because it's not, there's not equal representation. We don't have equality of outcome in the NBA, right? I want to see some Native players in there, Native Americans. <laughs> but you see my point. You push it right. like you push it to that point. It's like, you know, why the NBA ha- has so many successful black players is because the NBA isn't based on race and based on equality of race. It's based on merit. It's a meritocracy. Best players make it. If you try to force an equality of outcome, meaning, oh well, you got to have equal representation based on races. It's no longer based on it's no longer based on merit, and so they're really the NBA becomes not the best basketball players. It becomes a fair representation of what's in the population. Now, if you're running a company, are you gonna are you gonna hire based on merit? Are you gonna hire based on racial quotas? I mean, if you want to run a successful company, you 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 hire based on merit. I'm not going to hire an idiot because I, I, because I get to check a box. (laughs) Same with the school system. Like, it's funny that like, like public school, 
Well, well, let's look at let's look at the culture. Let's look at cultures right now, okay? Because be, behind Wait, race on is cultures. Bef okay. Before we do that, there, I found a definition where they said racism is not only the prejudice against a certain race due to the color of a person's skin, as it states in our dictionaries, it is both prejudice combined with social and institutional power. It is a system of advantage based on skin color. Right. Now, I don't so, know if that's the the current one, but that's something I find. No, no, no. Listen, um, listen to what's being said there. Advantage, okay. right? Because that's right. that's one of those words they're using, right? You have white privilege, right? Is that is that a real thing? Is it an advantage? Is it an advantage? Is it a privilege? Now, here's the here's the interesting thing. If we start to base things on statistics and we look at because guess what? There are poor white people. And guess what? There are stupid white people. So, it's if you're stupid and poor, there's a good chance you don't have a whole lot of advantage or privilege of going anywhere. That's just that's that's just the statistics, the facts of it. One of the one of the good indicators of your success in life is your level of intelligence, your IQ. Now, whether you're white or black or Asian, if you're an idiot, there's a good chance you're not going anywhere. That's just statistically speaking. Now, if you look at the culture of like, let's say around education, why do Asians excel? Why? Because their culture values education. Now, if you have a culture that doesn't value education, you're not, your culture isn't necessarily going to excel in school. So what we're doing is we're punishing Asians because they work hard to get into schools, because they work hard in, it, it, before they get to university. They get the highest test scores. They are religious about their homework. Like that's, that's cultural. And to say it that, that it's some advantage just because they're Asian, it's, yeah, it, there's an advantage to them embodying a certain culture. It does not mean that all Asians are going to excel at school better than every other race. That's not what it means, and that's not how it plays out. Because there are extremely intelligent black people, there are extremely intelligent white people, there are extremely intelligent Latino people. So in reality... Anyone and everyone from every race can excel. So these advantages, these, it's, it's funny. I didn't really, I, I mean, I guess it is definitely relevant to what's going on today because it is charging the, the, polar, the polarization conversations is these ideologies and they've infected the, the politics and they've infected the institutions. And it is, I'd say, a big contribution to what we are seeing and what people are experiencing because they've adopted this belief that because there's an equal outcome in the world, that that means that, that the system itself is racist, that the system itself is unfair. And again, if you look at actual laws that are in existence that discriminate, they're against whites and Asians, not against blacks or Latinos. Like there's nothing in the system that, that discriminates against these other disadvantaged races. And if we look at, in this whole conversation of disadvantaged races, what we're doing is we're victimizing people. We're victimizing entire classes and entire uh, races of people, saying that 
which again is so racist to say that oh well you're black so you you know you're disadvantaged you won't get as far as me if i like if somebody said that to me like oh you well you've got you've got brown skin there's a good chance i'm gonna go very far i'd be pissed i'd be like you know what screw you it has nothing to do with the color of my skin i will and actually what it creates is a response on the other side I don't know right. how many white guys I've heard saying they feel victimized because so and so is you know got a job over they did or they got kicked out right. so and so got a bonus or so and so got into a university and they're like that's racist and they're running around screaming top of their lungs saying you know, this isn't fair so well, if you do it on one side the other side has the same reaction as all employees right and and actually there are people who see it as like don't victimize me like Clarence Thomas Clarence Thomas who's a Supreme Court justice, he's black, and he despises the idea of affirmative action because the presumption was that he got his position because of it. And he knew he was the top of his class. He knew he was more intelligent than the people he was going to school with. But everyone's presumption and assumption is, oh, well, yeah, he, you know, he got here because of affirmative action. So people who do actually put in the work and try and like don't adopt this victim mentality that's being pushed on them by other people outside of their race. Like what's so astounding to me is all these white people pushing victimhood on everyone else. That's racist. And you're claiming that you're not the racist. You're pushing out there that because of someone's skin color, they're a victim. Guess what? That's racist, you know? And so I, there, it's this contradiction. That's a contradiction. That is that cognitive dissonance. They believe they're not racist, and yet they're pushing these racist agendas. So there's definitely anxiety. I mean, you've seen some of these people at these protests and the riots. I mean, it's as if some of them are insane. It's like, ah, they're losing their minds because of this anxiety that's being created by, because I don't think that these people really think they're doing bad things or that they're or that there's anything wrong with their beliefs. But there is contradiction there. They do believe themselves to be good people, and they do believe themselves to be pushing good ideas. I do believe that. I believe that people, for the most part, act from a good place. What they feel is right. But when you, what you're pushing, what you're saying, what you're doing is in contradiction to what you believe about yourself. You believe yourself to be a good person. You believe yourself to be against racism and you're pushing these racist ideas and these racist policies. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of this craziness is popping up as people are going through this, this anxiety of being torn between what sounds like, if you don't really look at it closely, it sounds like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good idea. We want people to have we want everyone to have access to the same things. We want everyone to be able to experience having a good life. And we want everyone to not feel discriminated against. Like we, we all want these things. But if you really look at some of the policies that are being pushed in from these, philo- these philosophical standpoints, it's against what they supposedly stand for. At least that's how I see it. I may be wrong, but that's how I see it. So uh, we... I kind of thought this was going to happen, but your rant got a few comments that popped up. Want to hear them? Oh, shoot. Hold on. I I, <laughs> I didn't even think we were going to have anyone. 
<laughs> coming in. So I didn't even have it open. Yes. Yeah, so, wow. So we got one that says, this is privilege squandered. <laughs> got another one that says, this is goldfish logic. <laughs> we got another one that says, I see where you're going. I appreciate it. Your definition is inherently skewed. You are talking about outcomes where the definition is talking about access. And that's just it. We have equal access. The only, the only place access is skewed is in affirmative action. Everyone has access to universities. Everyone has access to choose the jobs that they apply for. Like we do not have anything in place that would prevent anyone from having access. Like I said, like the NBA, like everyone has access to the NBA. Anyone could try to play in the NBA, but it's a meritocracy. So you get what you get in the NBA is the best players, right? Like that's how it breaks down. And to say that the NBA is racist because it's mostly black players, I don't agree with that. I, I think it's, I don't think there's anything racist about the NBA. I think, I think we it's, need a, to it's do, a meritocracy. I think we need to do an entire episode on critical isms. theories. Yeah. And not even the <laughs> theories. Just let's go through and define some of these terms and let's go through and define how people are using these terms and where they're showing up. I don't, I don't even feel prepared to have this conversation, this debate with you. No, we, we, <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not even really sure what, you know, these critical theories you're talking about, how they're defined and how people are using them. I have my own interpretation of them, but mm-hmm. I haven't done enough diligence to, to really speak articulately. Right. But you can, I, I mean, you can understand on a level of principles, what we're talking about here. I can understand that if people were all aligned behind a principle rather than an ideology, there would be no conflict. (laughs) Right. But is that, is that, for instance, do you think the NBA should base its players on percentage of people in the population? Do you think it should be 60% white, 13% black, 10% Asian or you know what I mean? Do you think it should so be forced to create an equal outcome of players based on their proportion in the population? So that's getting into the ideology. My idea is that it should be even or whatever else. For me, I'm like, if we stick to the principle of fairness, I'm like, mm-hmm. if we make it fair for everybody, I think that's ultimately what would make everybody in the in the conversation happy, or at least the mass majority. Some people don't want it fair. They're called sociopaths. Just kidding. No, no. They're, they're, <laughs> I'm sure some of them thing. exist. Like I, I said, guess, but... I don't think I don't think there's necessarily <laughs> malintent. Just like with affirmative action. Right. Like affirmative right. action isn't like something that was put in places like, ha, we're gonna get those Asians or those whites and we're gonna, you know, stick it to them. No. It was really like we we want to to see more of an equality of outcome. But again, that's that's reversing the idea of a meritocracy, you know. So let's and that's splitting the principles. What principle are we standing on? I mean, in reality, it's yes. This is definitely a conversation for another time because, <laughs> I mean, in reality, if you look at affirmative action, it's racist, plain and simple. Um, but like I said, that's a that's something we can have a conversation about at another time. Um, because it's it's it fits in with current events for sure, 
but uh, I wanted Maggie run to help her mom out real quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's yeah, and uh, it's something that we need to address. But right now, we still have a couple more topics that I wanted to touch okay. on before, uh, because I didn't want to. Again, this is a conversation that you can break down for days and for hours, and it is relevant. But I also wanted to look at more current events. And so specifically, and actually this is, this is definitely related. So we've talked about the pandemic. Now let's mm-hmm. take a look at the, uh, the political spectrum. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick and choose little pieces of it because everything's become polarized. Everything's become politicized. So let's specifically, let's look at um, the protests. Okay, so you have which protests? I mean, they're, I mean, they're supposedly they're all Only around the same ideas. It's, which protests are we talking about? <laughs> no, yeah, well, specifically, I mean, most of them revolve around uh, justice, right? We'll say roughly justice, um, police brutality, and okay. um, and the Black Lives Matter and Antifa movements and things like that. Um, that's I'd say majority. Um, because I'm not, I'm not talking about demonstrations because there are people who go out and, you know, aren't necessarily against something. A protest is against something, right? And there, I'm sure at any moment in time you have, I mean, like you were just talking about in Germany, um, mm-hmm. like actually that, I guess that would have been a protest because they were against something, right? Was it, it was, against? They were, they were anti-mass. They were anti-mandate okay. uh, stay-at-home orders. They were anti like basically they had a whole bunch of demands, but right. they were very much against what was going on. Right. Right. So I would say it's, uh, we'll look at what's, what's going against. Um, because we look at protesting know, in general, or do you want to pick a protest? No, no, no. We're, I mean, you can, yeah, let's, let's, let's stick with the, the police brutality and black lives matter. And because that's, I'd say that's the hot one that seems to be, you know, uh, you know, people are burning down cities and stuff with relation to these uh, particular demonstrations, that's protests. Uh, I mean, there's, Floyd there's, there, yeah, there's specific, nah, dude, Gingy, you, you, yeah, it's funny. I don't know why I picked Gingy to have a, uh, <laughs> a, a current events yeah. conversation with. So Gingy, Kurt, Gingy's still on like, <laughs> like current events for ginger what was happening in february <laughs> so it's it, it, it he's he's like oh you mean george floyd dude you there's been like five other guys since then like where you been um so yeah so ginger isn't exactly mr current events but you do get so you do know in. what's going okay well i again i don't want to get into the specifics because i want to talk about in general because they're all around the same idea they're all around um police brutality and they're all around uh, Black Lives Matter. I, I, I'll, I'll say in in general that it's uh, a movement being pushed forward for ending police brutality and for and it's being pushed forward by uh, the I guess you can loosely call the movement Black Lives Matter. Um, now there are people that that is a I guess we have to break it down in that that is an organization. So there is an ideology in an organization called Black Lives Matter. 
And I wouldn't say that necessarily all of what's happening is part of that organization. They, it's all getting lumped together though. Okay, so it is kind of seen as this is Black Lives Matter. And I, and I think we need to draw that distinction in that there are things happening in cities all over the country. And it's not like it's all part of this organization. You know, that there are things happening that have nothing to do with the organization. In fact, even even if people are holding up signs that say Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily pushing the agenda of an organization. It doesn't mean that they even know about the agendas or the principles of the organization. It's just people with signs. So there are many different elements and distinctions that we can draw from this and that I, I feel is definitely important because it is speaking into something that's, you know, probably overdue. <laughs> police reform. Um, it's not like uh, police brutality is anything new. Uh, but again, if we took look at narratives and agendas, what exactly are we looking at? Because there is a narrative around this and it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of reality. Mm-hmm. And so I guess first I'd like to see what your experience, both of you, what your experiences are of these movements. And I'm just going to keep it in general terms of, you know, uh, police reform, because it's not, it's not just about police brutality, Gingy, just to let you know, they're, they're also trying to, you know, defund police departments. And I, again, I don't know how, how much, you know, because you're, you know, you don't really plug in much. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, it's, I, what to me seems like something like, you know, people have known about for a long time. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, tell me more about that. I haven't heard about that. Um, so I forget that you're not as plugged in as, as a lot of us, um, that you, 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 you really do live in an, in another world and universe. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's, it's probably a much better place to be psychologically. Dude, um, I haven't been on Facebook in at least six months, and that's where I used to get most of my like, "Ooh, this event happened," and then I go researching into it. Right. Without right. that, I'm like, "How much do I want to go chasing after news to figure out what's going on?" <laughs> right. Right. So I just want to get you guys' yeah. take on what you think about you know these that particular piece because it is, it is a I I. I believe in our current society and what's happening in the world currently and what people are experiencing. Again, that fear, that anxiety, that depression. I believe that this is a a big contributing factor um, because people are experiencing insecurity and and feeling unsafe. Like guns, again, if we go back to, you know, not only are uh, suicide rates through the roof and higher than they've ever been, gun sales. I'm pretty sure everyone in the country owns like three guns at this point. <laughs> like, like that's, if you look at the numbers of guns and ammunition being purchased, I'd say it's a pretty good indicator of people not feeling safe. And, and I would say that a lot of it has to do with, you know, cities being burnt and, and things like that. And, and again, the, these demonstrations, these protests and these riots are coming out of, you know, police brutality, police reform, and and uh, and Black Lives Matter is is a significant part of it. I'm not I'm not going to say they're the whole part of it, um, but they're I'd say the the biggest piece of of, of an organization you can kind of lump in on this because there are many. I've seen I've seen at least a dozen different organizations or movements around these, but that's the biggest one that 
And again, that people just associate themselves with by, you know, signage and things. It doesn't mean they're actually part of the organization or anything. Else. So what are you, what is your take on what you're experiencing, what you're seeing and how are you choosing to interpret this? And where do you think, I really want to get your guys' input on where you think we can go as individuals, as, you know, how would you share this and how would you like to see people around you inter- interpret things so that it is, it is in their, in, in, Maggie always uses the term nervous system, but it's something that benefits them uh, in, in their own well-being, you know, as from spiritual well-being, mental well-being, like what is a healthy way of viewing the world on fire? The world on fire. <laughs> um, so first off, I, uh, my dad's mostly black. <laughs> I'll start there. <laughs> and uh, I've been around a lot of the um, black ideologies and history. Like my dad experienced real ass racism and my grandpa even more. And funny enough, like the most racist people I ever knew growing up, old black guys. I think even, <laughs> I think even Chris Rock had a, a skit about that. He's like, if you ever want to like see true racism, go hang out with somebody's grandpa. And he'll, he'll talk about the days where people were being strung up and, and like, you couldn't go to the same schools as people drink from the same right. water and fountains and stuff like that. My dad grew up in Atlanta where at least for the first, you know, however, you know, a couple handfuls of years that he was alive where like he couldn't go to the same movie theater as people. Mm-hmm. There was a white movie theater and a black movie. Theater. When he moved up North to wherever Colorado, it was like, Oh my God, you mean we share everything? It was like revolutionary for him. And he was like 10 years old. And those experiences still live with him. And so when, when I hear about Black Lives Matter, and I, when I first started hearing, and I started looking into it, I was like, you know, like the first thing I noticed was that there was a principle of Black Lives Matter. And, mm-hmm. um, and I took that to mean like not all lives, not any specific life outside of black lives. And so my, my first thought was, well, why not all lives? Like, my mom's not black. And uh, I'm like, that's, that's a part of me that also matters. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, my identity is associating with um, black and not black. Um, and I think I started talking to some people about that and i was like well why not all lives like, well you can't say that you that's that's not thing it was actually like a, a counter um operation what are those called the uh an operation meant to discredit another movement or, or organization anyway right um i figured there's an actual term for that but i started looking into it and trying to find out the core of um the ideology like, why is it that all lives can't matter? Why is it that we all have to focus on Black Lives Matter? And what I found was that it's, um, you know, well, number one, it 
presupposes that black lives don't matter or that they're undervalued at the very least. And I don't know, I've never met a single person that doesn't value black lives. And so it was kind of shocking to me that that was the, um, like the, the main focal point. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, why? I get that. So if we assume that these lives are mattering less than other lives, then why can't we just all get behind a principle of life matters and not necessarily focus just on black lives and make it a, a human rights issue? And really, there's there's one explanation that it clicked it for. There's this pastor on YouTube talking about why all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And it's he was basically explaining how when he turns on the TV and he sees another white kid shot by, a, or sorry, black kid shot by a white cop, it doesn't feel like Black Lives Matter. When, you know, black people make up the majority of the, the, the prison population, it doesn't feel like Black Lives Matter. So it's, it's a general feeling or sentiment that, um, that I'm not even going to say the black community because that's an entirely different conversation. I think the majority of people that I've seen talking to me about Black Lives Matter were white. I haven't had this conversation, but with one other black person. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's almost like for certain communities, they don't feel as though black lives matter as much as they should. And for me, I understand the inherent power of an individual where any one person can choose to give their power up to concept like that or belief or um, social constraints even. And somebody else can find power with something. And so, it, well, on top of that, who is to dictate the feelings of somebody else? It really comes down to the individual as to how they feel. So not to discredit the movement or really what all the majority of people are standing for with the signs and everything else is to um, minimize the amount of injustices that they're seeing. They don't want to see another black guy getting shot or killed by another white police officer. And realistically, if we all were behind, like, let's unarm our police force, <laughs> those cops may not be so forceful anymore, you know? And, like, there are solutions to problems, but we, we have a tendency, I've noticed, to, to make it personal about identity or something like that where we we take it on and say this aspect of myself isn't mattering to other people or to the to society at large and i think that's really the my only gripe with the whole thing like i do think that our police force should reform or change or whatever the, the term it may be. I, I don't think they need to be killing anybody, not even 
know, drug dealers and bank robbers and murderers. I don't think they need to kill anybody. Now, like they may be special situations, but that's why we've got like, you know, SWAT teams and stuff. <laughs> like, let those guys do the killing and let our general police officers that are, you know, pulling people over and doing stuff, let those people um, walk around with billy clubs again or something like that. I know you can kill people with a billy club. You can fucking kill someone with a knee. But it would make that extremely less likely. And so, uh, I, I beg to differ. America's, <laughs> okay. America is armed. Like, plain and simple. Like, yeah, sounds, yeah. that's a great idea. But as long as you have violent criminals that are armed and you take away the arms of the police, I don't see that as a solution unless you disarm everyone. Um, because then what I'm you're going to have. About if you what, don't what, want what you'd be left with is people. no cops. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's just it. They, they don't just blindly go around. I know that's the narrative that they just go around killing people. But that's, no, not no, what's, no. that's not what's actually happening. About, okay, okay. Okay, listen. So I'm, I'm not actually proposing that as a solution. I know it wouldn't work if our entire police force was unarmed. <laughs> okay. What I'm saying is... Because <laughs> you said unarmed. Give them billy clubs. <laughs> if our problem is that we don't want police to kill people anymore, then we take away the weapons. Like, I'm just outlining solutions to a specific problem. Now, if we have a problem with the way the entire police force is operating or specific problems inside a, a police force or multiple police forces, then we can address those issues. I know that if we take away all the weapons, it's not going to take away weapons from the police force. That's not really going to fix the problems that are going on. We'll still see injustices. We'll still see stuff like that that's, that's showing up on that. So my whole experience and how I choose to see the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and the issues at large is, is my number one gripe with it is that assumption that black lives aren't mattering or that they don't matter because they do. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, every single life on this planet matters as much as any other life. Like to the point where I would value a mosquito. I would cry for the lettuce. I would, you know, all the life that I'd see is of the same amount of value. And if we're really going to get to the root of an experience of white life is, you know, being overvalued over black life, then we get to get all the way down to the foundational principle of life mattering and apply that everywhere. And we get to then challenge death penalties. We get to challenge factory farming, whether it be for vegetables or animals. Like we get to go into all types of life mattering and What's our standard for quality of life? Like, if, mat if life really matters, then what, you know, where do we stand on the entire issue? And I think if the whole thing gets wrapped around a specific principle, like I, I keep advocating for this over and over, if it's principle-backed, there's a whole lot more power in it. And whether that's with uh, police, like we want, you know, peaceful police or whatever the principle would be, if we want you know, fairness or justice or whatever the principle is, if we get behind that, then everything else gets, gets smoothed down in the process. So I don't feel that it's all backed by a principle. I think, like, even the concept of Black Lives Mattering is not 
it's not strong enough to really be effective because you're like, yeah, Black Lives Matter, unless they're a drug deal. Like, okay, now it starts falling apart. <laughs> Are all Black Lives Mattering regardless of, like, regardless of anything else? Because that's basically what the claim is or the assumption that they're not valid, no matter what they're doing. So I'm rambling and repeating myself now, but that's my experience of the whole thing is if we can all get behind one principle or a set of principles, then this will be extraordinarily effective. But until then, um, we'll, we'll continue, continue to see uh, videos like we've been seeing videos of and we've been We'll experience. We'll continue to experience uh, protests and anger and fear, and, and all of that stuff amplifying because it's. And this is just my opinion. I may be totally wrong, but I don't see it as effective as if um, we we all get behind something that we can all get behind. And by saying Black Lives Matter, it has caused. People running around saying, yeah, and white lives matter. Oh, no, 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 F you, all lives matter. And it's just become another argument because we're drawing an, an invisible line between this life and that life, and it, it's diluting the power that the movement could have. So that's, that's my spiel. And I hope I'm wrong, and I see that change out, <laughs> turn out to be something different, but uh, my two cents. Maggie? I completely understand the movement. I remember, you know, the years ago, maybe thinking four or five years ago, exactly sure the date when uh, they shot. I think he was a school teacher who was reaching to the glove to, to his registration from the glove compartment and and the wife was in the car and the cop just shot him and of course it, it you know it was a, this woman posted a video this black woman got stopped traffic you know, stop. And she made a video right after that and she was falling. Um because she was afraid. She was afraid because she was black. And she didn't know whether or not the cop was gonna shoot her. I've never felt that way, you know cop stops me I've never feared that he might shoot me I've never felt that I've never experienced that and so it broke my heart to see that she was so afraid she was a she was an attorney and that that's a memory that I have and this is years ago right before and, and a, a cop should not murder anyone the way we've been seeing on all these videos, period. 
just happens to be that the men that they're murdering are black men. So I get it. I understand, of course. I understand the organization. I understand why they created it. What I feel bad for is that there's an agenda behind this movement that is using this community and it's it's painting a picture of something that really isn't right and we've been seeing it where there where it's scheduled to have you know one of the protests going down a certain block street boulevard and there's bricks on the corner strategically placed there right or these men dressed in black breaking windows and you know putting these buildings on fire and having the protesters saying like that's not us and they're recording it so what is the agenda behind that that is a good question i understand why they're protesting of course where there needs to be people a community going out and protesting in order for the police department to arrest the officer that murdered somebody so there needed to be a protest in order for them to do something about it so if no one would have protested that cop would be free so there should be a consequence. I'm not saying defund the police department. Not all cops are murderers or racists. No, just like within any community, not everyone is, not all white people are racist. Not all black people um, are XYZ. Not all Latinos are XYZ. Not all cops are bad cops. So yes, if there's a cop and that cop murders someone, then there should be a consequence for that, which we haven't seen really. And why is it that there needs to be a protest in order for there to be a consequence taking place? That's a good question. Great question. Well, I see it as two different two distinctly different issues here that are really being talked about and that have been conflated and made into one thing. Right. Yes. There is account accountability is a necessity, right? For, for there to be justice in the world, there must be the law. The people who are enforcing laws must be accountable. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. However, I don't see this as a black, white, Hispanic issue. The issues if, if we're really talking about black lives mattering, let's look at black culture in the black community. Like Gingy was talking about how overrepresented in prison they are. Okay. Why is that? Have you really looked at what's behind that overrepresentation? And is that because of police or is it because of a culture? Are Asians underrepresented in prison? Why is that? Is it because of their culture? Is it because of their race? I think we're conflating these things and kind of squeezing them together as if they're one and the same. 
Like, the reality is people get killed by cops. It happens. It's a very dangerous job. Should they be held accountable? Absolutely. You know, now you can't just say, oh yeah, let's take away all their guns when everyone on the streets has guns. That's not, that's not practical. You know, and, and you see that most people who get killed by cops are armed and dangerous. And the, a lot of that is them protecting the community, their job and protecting themselves. So I see it as two separate issues, police accountability for their actions. And when they do kill someone that it should be scrutinized and that it should be looked at, but I don't see this as a race issue. Like I do think that there's definitely issues within the black community that definitely need to be addressed and definitely need to be looked at. And I think it's something that the black community should take on more than anyone else because it is their community. And when you look at 13% of the population being responsible for over 40% of the violent crime in the country, that's probably something to look at and take into consideration. And when you consider how much of their community is incentivized by political policies to have fatherless homes. And what, what do you get from that? What are the results? What happens in your community when you've incentivized not having a father in the home and not having a father in the home? What happens to these young black men who grow up without the, these father figures in their lives? And who are they looking up to? Because again, these are cultural issues that definitely need to be addressed and definitely need to be looked at. And if we're going to have an organization called Black Lives Matter, these should be their number one focuses. Because the reality is a handful of black people got killed by cops in a year. Like, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't happen. But it ain't there. It ain't the black community's biggest issue. If we look, if we prioritize, like, what are the biggest issues that are destroying this community? And the fact that 95 to 98% of blacks are killed by other blacks, eh, we may want to look at that as well. So I, I see it as two distinctly separate issues. That yes, we need to address police accountability because brutally beating people, needlessly shooting people should not be a part of law enforcement. It just shouldn't be. And if it happens, there needs to be accountability and it needs to be strict to the point where it is, it doesn't happen that people really are mindful and thoughtful about their actions as a law enforcement officer, because there are serious ramifications. And up until now, there's been a level of immunity with police. That's, I mean, that's why there's really been not much of accountability. They have this, their, their unions have worked out this immunity with them so that, yeah, they, ha- they haven't had to be real careful about what they're doing. And that's a tragedy. But it's, 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 not, it's not the biggest threat to the black community. That's for certain. Like, if you just look at the numbers and what's negatively impacting the black communities, it ain't police violence. It ain't police shooting black dudes. Like that is the least of their issues. 
And, Dave and, Chappelle even said table salt kills more black people than black cops. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and and but it, 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 I do think that all cultures that are experiencing that, like it's not like blacks have a monopoly on killing their own people. Like more white people kill white people than anything than anyone else. More Hispanics kill Hispanics than any other group. So it's, we have violence within our communities. We inflict violence upon our own. And it's probably one of the things we need to look the most at is that this violence that we afflict upon each other, like that should be the number one thing we're looking at is violence that we inflict upon each other. That is, that is paramount. Because until we could get the violence out of us that we inflict on our, on our, on, on not only our people, but on other people, on people, like violence against people. Well, if you take that all the way home, it's violence on ourselves. Like it it is. And that's, and that's why the cops are doing it. Like in reality, cops are, they're a reflection, right? Our, our culture, our society is, is one that is violent and is being violent. And so the police, the law enforcement reflect this violence. Like by and large, it ain't the police that are killing everyone. (laughs) When you look at the millions of people being killed every year, a very small percentage of those people are killed by cops. Again, not to say that they shouldn't be held accountable and not to say that brutality is wrong and shouldn't be present, but our biggest issue ain't the cops killing people. It's we're killing ourselves and we're killing each other. And we need to look at that. That's our biggest issue is violence that we perpetuate within our own societies, within our own cultures, within our own neighborhoods, right? Those are the issues. And I, and I do, I see them as distinct and, and this fact that they're getting conflated, um, I see it as problematic because it's like, it's, it's overshadowing the real issues. You know, like if we, if all we're focusing on is cops killing people and we're ignoring the, the other 95% of people that are being killed by our own people, like that seems almost ridiculous. Like if, if lives matter, black lives matter, if any lives matter, well, then we got to look at, well, 98% of, the people being killed in our community are being killed by regular people, not the police. But that's, that's how, the, again, we talk about these agendas and these narratives. That's how it's being played out as if, oh my God, it's the police. It ain't the police. <laughs> like, yeah, they are responsible and accountable to a handful of murders every year. But that ain't our issue. The issue isn't, 15 dudes that got killed last year. Okay. It's the tens of thousands of people that got killed that weren't killed by cops. Like that's the issue. You know, the, what was it? 15, 1550 people been shot in Chicago this year. 1,550 people. How many were shot by cops? Maybe one, two, you know, like, like that's an issue. That's a, that's a serious cultural community issue that definitely needs to be addressed, but is being overshadowed by this narrative that ain't really 
as impactful as these other things that we're completely ignoring. So that's the issue I have with it is that by putting this one aspect of our culture and society center stage and ignoring the real issues within society, there's no, there's no real changing it. There's no real solution on the horizon. It's two different things that should be focused on as two separate things. There is murder. There is death happening in our communities. And we need to focus on where, what that stems from and what the primary causes of that are and the primary perpetrators of that and focus energy and attention on that. And then address this police brutality and uh, unaccountability and and, uh, immunity that we've been giving police up until now and just like in, and put in place reasonable accountability that they can't just be immune for their actions, but it's two separate things. And by conflating them, I feel like it's like missing the point on both, you know, because it's creating this narrative and this story around police as if this is the greatest threat in America. And it's barely a threat to anyone. Like that's the reality. Look at the numbers. Statistically speaking, it's nothing compared to what we face and what the people face on a daily basis and what's really hurting our communities. So that's my take on that particular. (laughs) I've always wondered, every time I see another uh, police brutality, like some viral video that goes out, I always wonder why this one? Why not all the other ones that I'm sure happened today or this week or this month or this year? Why is this one the one that's getting millions and millions of views mm-hmm. in a matter of a day or two? And never really arrive at an answer, but it is a question that I'm constantly in. Well, it's Even, because, well, what, where are you seeing it? Where are you getting it? It's being fed to you through the media. There's a, there is a narrative. There is an agenda. And yeah, yeah but I'm even you're not, more you're about not the, seeing the timing of it. Like we're, yeah, we're not seeing the 100 million other times in the day that there was an eventless ep- or encounter with a cop. We're not seeing those. Those videos aren't going viral. But every day, or at least every month or six months, there's something that gets filmed like that that could potentially go viral that's, that's absurd, that's offensive to watch. But... The timing of it, I almost feel like, is just as important as the events we catch on camera. Like, opportunistic, even, to say, oh, perfect time. Let's pump this one. Let's make sure this gets out. To, like, I'm not saying there is someone behind, like, turn up the volume, turn up the heat. Let's do that. No. But it is rather convenient, or at least suspect, to have one death in the United States get as popular as, as they do. And I know there's horrific shit that goes on every day. Mm. But I, I always ask myself, why this one? Why? And I feel like that's extraordinarily important, not to say that there's an actual answer to it, but to ask that question. It, um, it's important. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you already spoke into it. When you, when you specifically... You use the words narrative. Maggie spoke about it as agenda. And that's, that's why you don't see all the other things that are happening is because 
there is a specific agenda. And, and because there's this agenda behind this particular issue, you, like it's pretty clear that it's not a solution that's being sought. There's something else at play here. Because if it really was about Black Lives Mattering and we really want to elevate Black communities and have less Black people dying, then we would be focusing on this in a completely different way. Right, if that was the principle we stand on. Exactly. It, it wouldn't be playing out the way that it is in the media. Because, okay, so, again, 15 people in 2019 or less were unarmed Black men killed by cops. Okay. And uh, how many tens of thousands or thousands were killed by other black men? And what's the biggest, what's a bigger issue in the black community? You know, the thousands or the dozen? You see what I'm saying? Not even even looking at who's dying, but what's the most impactful action we can take to uplift that community if we really care about that community? Right, exactly. Because then it's like, oh, well, now you got to consider the family structure and the fact that we've been incentivizing no fathers in the home for decades. You think it's important to have father figures in these kids' lives? You think it's important to maybe have a focus in the culture on education? Because again, let's talk, let's look at Asians, the Asian culture and the black culture and how much, how important it is in the Asian culture for education. Is it is the intercity cultures, do they value education as much as your typical Asian family? They don't. They're not, don't like, it's, you could see it. It's in the results. It's in their music. It's, it's part of the culture to not value education. It's right there in front of your eyes. Take a look. There are people who value it and who do excel in it like the Clarence Thomases, right? Not that he grew up in the inner city. I doubt he did. But if he did, he excelled in his family because there is the general culture and then there's your familial culture, right? Like Maggie, your family, Hispanic, has Hispanic elements of culture, but there are elements to your family's culture that are specific to your family, right? Not all Hispanics do everything you do, right? Right. We all have family culture. So yes, some families value education. Others don't. And there are elements like this in the, and and again, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying black, I'm saying in the inner city, in the poorer communities, there is less value placed on education. Statistically speaking, that's what it is. How do you know? Look at all the test scores. Look at all the attendance to the schools. Like it's, it's clear that there is not as much attention or concern or value on education. And again, that's a pretty solid metric and indicator for where you're going to be in the future and what, and what you're going to, where you're going to go. Same with two parent homes. You know, it's an indicator. It's not an absolute you could grow up without a father figure and still be successful and still create great things for yourselves, but it's, there, it, it is an indicator. It is you are much more likely to go on to higher education, to have a better job, to be more successful in life if 
you had father and mother figure. If you had, there are elements in our cultures, whether it's our, if you look at our heritage, whether it's Hispanic culture, black culture, or white culture, or Asian culture, like there are elements within those cultures that elevate the next generation. And there are elements within those cultures that suppress the next, the following generations. We need to look at that because it exists in all cultures. Like there are ways that people treat each other and talk to each other within cultures and communities that push down future generations. And there are those practices that'll elevate and push up. And those are some of the things we need to be focusing on in all communities if we're really concerned with people and lives and lives mattering in any way, shape, or form, because we're going to look at the things that are pushing people down, you know, and holding them down. And what is it about our beliefs and our practices that take us up and those things that take us down? Because like I said, there is no absolute in, you could take any race, you could take any culture, you could take any, any neighborhood. And there will always be outliers, people who aren't like the people around them and who do it differently. And therefore, they create a different kind of result. You know, just like there are, pe- there are all kinds of stories of people who come out of the inner cities and become extremely wealthy, extremely successful, or extremely intelligent. So you can't victimize them based on these narratives that are currently that like, oh, you're a victim because of your race, because of your culture, because of the neighborhood you grew up in, you're a victim you can't succeed. And that's, that's the narrative. And that's, you're asking, why do we see these things? Because that's the narrative. Because we, currently there's a narrative being pushed of oppressor oppressed and that the oppressors have been holding down the oppressed and that the oppressed don't succeed because of the oppressors. It's this victim. You're, you're, you're pushing a narrative of a victim class right? And entire, entire cultures, entire races, entire socioeconomic backgrounds that are victims to other people. And that doesn't, and if you tell someone that, especially as a child, you start telling them that they define themselves as a victim, they won't elevate themselves and they won't Hmm. push themselves beyond what they perceive as these are my limits, right? That's what's happening. These people are being told, well, no, 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 you're, you're oppressed and you're, and you're treated less than, and you don't have the opportunities. And so you define yourself that way. And so, yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to exceed because you've already defined yourself as a victim because other people outside of you are defining you as a victim. Interestingly enough, I, uh, in my looking into black lives matter and, uh, race and equity and that kind of stuff, I, one of the things that came up was uh, some black people saying, white people that say, like, we don't see color. Like, I'm colorblind. And that's a, a term. And, and some people even claim it to be a dangerous concept because mm-hmm. it, it, it ignores the, the real experience of somebody of color. So to ignore that would be to ignore their heritage and their cultural experiences and all that. And one of the big differences was that there's this one, this thing called the talk in black community where at some point black parents sit down and they talk to their kid and they say, okay, this is why you're treated differently. 
this is, uh, you know, it's because you're black that these people pick on you or that, you know, this person got the job or whatever that conversation is. There is the black conversation. And they went back and one of the things that they, in, in this write-up, they used to kind of use as an example to show the difference between being raised white and being raised black. And they were like, they asked this, these white couples on average, well, not even on average, dude, in totality, none of them had the race talk with their kids. Right. And me understanding how powerful belief is and worldview and the way that we see the world that drastically impacts the way that we engage the world and what we can create out of the world. And I here I am thinking that damn near every black kid growing up is getting a conversation from their parents saying, hey, just so you know, the world is unfair and you're going to be a leg down compared to all these other people. Mm-hmm. And all the, the, the mass majority of the white people are being raised without that narrative, without that conversation, without that belief or worldview, thinking just people are people running around in the world trying to create things. And when the black kid's like, oh, I can't do that because of, you know, there's white people there. I'm not going to get the whatever the reward is. I'm like, I wonder how much societies would change if that conversation with those kids was flipped and being like, you're going to get extra because you're black. Or everybody's on an even playing field. You've got to try as hard as you can in order to achieve what you want to achieve. You've got to be fully committed. You've got to, whatever, stand mm-hmm. on principles. I Absolutely. wonder how societies would shift if it would, it would completely shift. That is the culture. The the yeah, that's the culture. That's the shifting culture. And so yeah. I, want to, I want to bring this back around to the, the low resolution view, right? Everything that's going on in everyone's experience that they're having right now. And taking in consideration that this is an, an opening, right? This is an opportunity that we're seeing in that clearly, <laughs> clearly we're up, there's, there's big things on the horizon. And I think the, the perfect analogy that I, that, uh, in fact, the reason I invited Maggie on this call was because of, uh, of her, of, of a series of trainings she does on based on the Phoenix. So when I, me and her were talking, I guess it was probably over a year ago, right? Where you were declaring the year of the, the Phoenix, right? And, and for me, what the, again, the Phoenix represents, you know, something that burns completely burns up and out of it emerges something new, right? The, the next generation is born from the ashes and it is, and it, and, it, and it evolves, right, that, this way. And it moves from generation to generation this way. And I looked, and like I said, looking around with, you know, pandemics and the crazy polarizations and riots and shit burning, and it's, you know, there's all kinds of excitement, right? And it's, it's indicative. It's like if you look throughout human history when we've had all this craziness going on that we've elevated, we've pushed forward and we've created amazing things. Like if you really look in history and you look at like what, what was going on through the Renaissance and the enlightenment and all the, all the madness and the craziness and the, 
inequities and what was born out of that, you know, from arts and philosophies to even like concepts of individual freedoms. Like that didn't exist. You had a tyrannical planet up until that point. And, and the world is a completely different place because of that, that, that effect that everything was burning and from it emerged this whole new thing, this whole new way of looking at the world, this whole new way of interacting, this whole, whole new ways of thinking emerged. And from that, an amazing world was created. So you, I feel that if we look at what's happening all around us, that it could be indicative of amazing things on the horizon. If, and especially if we let go of these ideologies that will have us pitted against each other. Because that's, I don't see pitting humanity against one another is, is the next level. And like, yeah, we're going to get there by killing off half the planet. Nah, I, I don't think that's really the way to go. But I think Hashtag in putting, me. yeah, <laughs> by putting everyone under all this immense stress and really letting them see that, letting them see the enemy they create in themselves because everyone outside of you is a reflection in some way, shape or form of you. And you've created this animosity, this hatred, this anger in other. And when you recognize that there, what you're, what you've really been focusing that anger and that hatred and all that on is possibly a reflection of you. And there could be this great awakening that occurs when people, you know, really look at and really start to think about w what's been occurring and really what we still have to face. There's still, there's still a lot of excitement, you guys. I, I, hope, I hope you're down for all the excitement because there's going to be a lot of excitement coming up. And I see it, you know, I see it being pretty exciting for the next probably couple of years, you know, and, uh, and I think that something great can come from it. And in that, I'm going to hand it off to Maggie. Maggie, tell me about your views of the Phoenix and the world around you and what is it you can offer in the world and what's coming up? Well, there is fire in California right now. I know. Isn't it exciting? <laughs> A lot of fire. Uh, so if I'm talking about fire... So people are saying California is burning, right? Um, but fire really, in essence, the element of fire is an element that is of also healing, of cleansing, of love, in representation of love, in representation of, of transmuting. And the rising phoenix, it rises from the ashes uh, to become anew, to bring something new forth. And we are in that energetic field right now of transformation. And people are feeling it. People can feel something. Those that are very intuitive already know and have felt the calling uh, since the beginning of the year. As I mentioned, like I, I went within and I knew that what was coming was pretty big. Um, and in order for the phoenix to rise, it needs to burn. 
and Brandon said that the world on fire theme topic of today's uh, chat is is just perfect analogy for for what is going on and the perspective of people with the world now what is your perspective and your interpretation of fire right there's the file the violet flame for most people that are healers that have been working with the violet flame for the years i've been using that type of therapy within my trainings for over 10 years now and the violet flame many communities around the world use that and you can actually see um, a village and you can see this violet flame which is like a violet light hue surrounding a village and that simply is because vibrationally that community holds that frequency and that vibration in healing and transmuting in creating um, an energy field within them uh, and that's one of the reasons why i love community creating communities creating communities of abundance and the rising phoenix is an upcoming event that i am putting together where it is specifically for the individual that has been feeling that calling that are healers of some sort whether they do reiki they are a clinical therapists to holistic therapists um whatever it is that you do within the healing realm those that have been even called forth even before they came into this planet that is really what this event that is really for whom this event is for for individuals that understand that there is a lot more going on beyond what we can see with the physical eye with the physical eyes um, but with your third eye if you can actually see energetically what's going on and how we're transitioning into that fourth dimension and how in order for us to move we get to all to transform we get to evolve into being able to hold that vibration so that we can hold space for what this planet is has been asking for and we saw the difference that happened when we all went into our homes and we saw how the planet healed within just a couple of days a few days the, the planet had has been asking for healing has been asking to be able to be a part of our lives so that we can become part of this energetic tapestry as the human race we take and take and take and have been taking from the planet and we are not coexisting with the planet we simply are using the planet so that we can survive because we truly are not thriving as a race as a human race on this planet we have been affecting this planet so for individuals that feel the calling that understand that they're here for a greater purpose 
that they're here to make a difference, that they're here to touch lives, to heal the planet, to heal others. Uh, this is the calling for them to come together at on the 18th at 4.44 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Come together. We're going to be doing an a private live broadcasting. And what uh, you can expect to receive from this event, it is an actual ceremony for individuals that understand that they get to be part of this. And that ceremony is an initiation for these light workers, for these healers that are on this planet, that are here to make a difference, that are here to leave uh, an impact on, on this planet before we transition and we, we leave uh, the, this physical realm. Um, we all signed up for, for something. And for those that feel that they're here to take that experience to another level, I invite you to go ahead and register. You can go to my website, maggieramirez.com, and there will be a form for you to sign up. It is a free event. It is by uh, Love Donations. If you choose to um, offer a love donation, it is if you don't, it is completely fine. It is a free event. And you can go to the website, sign up. You will receive an email with information as to the link to the private event. Um, and we will come together on September the 18th at 4.44 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and begin the process of this ceremony and the initiation for what it is that you are here to do and how you can take your gifts and your talents that you have been given and how you can take that on to a greater version of your divine self. So thank you very much to you, Brandon and Jinji, for allowing me to have this platform to share a little bit about what it is that we will be doing in just a week and a half or so, uh, and so that we can share this information to all the viewers, those that feel called to be part of this, you're more than welcome to participate. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. So, uh, well, I uh, had a goal today. My goal was to <laughs> have this episode be uh, an an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. I, <laughs> I failed miserably. It's over double that time. But I do appreciate the both of you and what you brought to this conversation. Um, it, it, it's funny. I feel like every time we get to the end of a conversation, I'm like, oh, man, there's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so much more we could really, so much more to explore. Um, yeah. And so uh, I look forward to exploring more with each of you. Um, until then, I thank everyone's participation. Thank you very much, Gingy. Thank you very much, Maggie. And thank, thank you, you to the audience and to uh, we had several people chiming in throughout the live broadcast. And thank you to all of them. Sorry we didn't get any chances to really interact with the live audience today. Um, but again, I, I, had a, I had a goal. Hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> And if had we taken on 
the the comments of the live audience, we would not even have come still close be here. to three hours. Yes, we'd still be going. So <laughs> with that, thank you, everyone. And see you all very soon.